or color they are. Talk to each other. Listen to each other. We're not all that different. I like good food. Good music. I want to fall in love. I want a good job. I want my kids to live in a world where they are loved and safe and respected for who they are. Sure, we're all different. But we're also all the same. Understand the similarities. Respect the differences. Help end prejudice in your lifetime. Call 1-800-934-3430 or log on to www.whitehouse.gov. Let them know what you do to end prejudice. Together we can build one America in the 21st century. Brought to you by the President's Initiative on Race, the Leadership Conference Education Fund, and the Ad Council. The wash is out, it's hanging out, and all I have is nothing, nothing to do, nothing to say, I think I must be dreaming, the sun comes up and I'm all washed out, is this what Dina was talking about? afternoon, Ann Arbor. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm sitting in the studio with Philip Krimble. Philip, welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, T. Thanks, thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks so much for coming. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so, uh, Philip, before we go any further, before I, I give the bio, all your, your, your stats, um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that song, because that song was one you chose by Ween. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a song that a, a good friend of mine, David Wells, recommended to me. He made me a, a copies of all of the entire collection of Ween, and I thought that maybe I'd play that as a tribute to him today. And in fact, there is a, a poem in my collection called Our Friends Electric uh, that references David and an experience that we had together on uh, New Year's Eve a couple of years ago. And was there Ween played at the party? Because no, I think there was like... The... There's no, there was just about everything else, but no, no Ween that night. No Ween. Um, yeah, and if he made you the whole, the collection of Ween, uh-huh. that yeah. that's vast. That must have been, uh, you must have like m- multiple CDs from David Wells. I'm uh, thinking probably as many as 10. Yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> you might even be do some, actually, <laughs> Philip. Um, well, uh as I said, well, let's do the let's do your biography now, Philip. Um, Philip Crimble, and and before going further, um, uh, Phil will be reading tonight at Shamendrum Bookshop, um, seven o'clock. Uh, let's see. Philip Crimble was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and emigrated to Canada with his family um, when he was eleven. He holds two bachelor's degrees, and in two thousand two, earned his MFA right here from the University of Michigan, receiving both the Hopwood Award and a Cowden Fellowship. Um, Philip has has received multiple grants and 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 awards, and is his work is upcoming in in many fine periodicals. And I, I wanted to note earlier this year he was selected to read in Poetry Ireland's annual introduction series in Dublin, which sounds really 
really cool. <laughs> oh, it was a tremendous experience. I was, why, why so? Well, I was just delighted to be invited to do that. And of course, you know, having been born in Ireland, it seemed like it just a, just a wonderful homecoming for me. Uh, so uh, just a tremendous experience. Uh, when I went there, actually, it's sort of an interesting story since you've brought it up. Uh, you know, I worked with Richard Chillingast here for a long time. Uh, of course, he's retired to uh, Ireland now. Uh, he's living in County Tipperary out in the countryside. And uh, he surprised me at the reading in Dublin. I took the train in. Uh, and, you know, when I got there, he arrived and it was just amazing. So he was there for the reading. We went out for a drink afterwards. Fabulous! Oh, that's that is wonderful. Yeah. Now I, I kind of pictured as you was as you were telling the story, um, Philip, that it was like American Idol. Well, I guess it'd be Irish Idol, right? But then then he's up there with like a sign, you know, in the crowd for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly I appreciate the support. Yes. Yeah. And um and pretty it must be pretty amazing to then go back, return to Ireland. You it sounds from reading your book, Wide Boy, uh, I yes. feel like you've returned multiple times. It's not something that's unusual for you. It's a big part of your present as well as your past. No, absolutely. Uh I lived there for a year in uh nineteen ninety four, ninety five and uh you know, went back in nineteen ninety for the first time in a long time. Went there lived there for a year, five years later, and then I went back every summer for about five years in a row. And I was back last year because I had to do the the introductions reading. I mean, obviously, it was a privilege for me to do that. Uh, so it gave me an opportunity to go back. I have lots of family there. My grandmother's there. My father has two sisters there. Yeah. So firm firm roots there. Yeah, still. absolutely. Oh yeah, very and much so. Do they do they tease you at all about being Canadian? Having you know that you're you're from you're you're American now. That mm. sort of do they give you that sort of flack? Philip, when you're there, or no, they're pretty cool about it. Uh, it's sort of interesting that you, that you bring that up. I was doing a couple of uh, readings in Toronto over the summer, and uh, you know, I've been living here in the states since uh, 1999 now. And uh, did you, know, you come for school then? I came for, for school. For yeah. yeah, I uh, I started off going down to Purdue University in Indiana. Spent a year there working with a, a tremendous poet called Marianne Baruch. Perhaps you know for. Uh, just an amazing, amazing writer. Uh, oh, so I had just a, a tremendous time there. Learned a whole bunch. And my wife really wanted to come to the University of Michigan to do her PhD in Com Studies. Uh, so in, in Com uh, Communication Studies. Yeah. So she's doing that now, uh, and she's in her last year at this point. So we've been here. It's now 2007. So I started the MFA at Michigan in 2000. So I've been, you know, two years. Uh, as a student, five years teaching, then this year, and then perhaps who knows where. Right, right. Because now you've spent a chunk of time almost. Um, it is, it's strange how that, the years add, add up, isn't it? When you, and you, you come to a place, maybe you did foresee it being such a chunk of time because your wife was going for, for, for the PhD, which is, you never really know with that, do you? How many years it's going to take? With our MFA, right? It's at least it's a prescribed. Yeah, it's pretty finite. But, you know, it's interesting. What I should do is get back to the point I was trying to make in the first place Let's about, do that. about <laughs> the, uh, the, the fact that, you know, my, my Irish relatives don't make fun of the fact that I have a Canadian accent. Uh, but when I was in Toronto, a lot of the people there uh, tended to feel that I had an American accent more so now. Really? I, yeah, I think huh. so. And I can hear it a little bit myself. It's, a, it's somewhat disconcerting. I like my Canadian accent. I, I <laughs> quite enjoy sort of owning it in a sense. And I feel like I've just had sort of like this force that's sort of been sort of pressured onto me and that I've been 
sort of changing the way that I pronounce words. Hmm. Well, I wonder if there's one of the poems that you choose to read for us, um, Philip. Maybe one of those will be one of the more Canadian nature poems, and then you might sort of yeah, I reemerge as a, <laughs> as your true Canadian. Yeah. Well, because that's it's interesting because you you have you've obviously lived in Ireland till you, you were eleven. Yes, right? right. I tried to do the math there with the years mm. and and um and uh, and then and then you've moved to Canada. So so what um, was one of your parents Canadian as well? Did you always feel like you were these these this bicultural uh, being? <laughs> well, uh, what happened actually was my uh, my dad's two brothers moved to Canada, and uh, they sponsored him to come over. He was an electrician, uh, so he was able to do that and bring his family with him. So having family in the country already, and of course, uh, my Uncle Carl, uh, my dad's oldest brother, was in the armed forces, so that certainly didn't hurt in terms of sponsorship. Uh, so he was able to come over that way. Uh, and of course, living in Northern Ireland in the uh, late 1970s, it wasn't exactly the most desirable place to be because of all of the political turmoil, all of the terrorism, et cetera. So it was kind of, you know, to our benefit to get out of there. Uh, we had just been living there for a year. We, I'd lived there till I was seven. Then we moved to Zambia for two years. Oh, yes. Okay. Right. And then yes. we moved back to Ireland for a year, realized pretty quickly, I'm assuming that's what my father did, that it wasn't the place that he wanted to raise his kids, then moved us to Canada. And I lived there till, you know, 99. Right, you right. Know. And so, yeah, it must, well, I guess we could spend, you know, ages trying to sort of like deconstruct this, like, what is it to be Canadian? What is it to be Irish what, nor, and from Northern Ireland? And from, yeah. yeah, it just, so let's, let's instead, maybe, shall we read, would you like to read a poem? One of mm -hmm. the, um, now, <laughs> um, uh, I think maybe I'll read this one uh, because it really does deal with uh, identity issues, uh, particularly as uh, they pertain to uh, the spoken word in a sense. And this is a poem called Brogue. Uh, it's in a sort of more telegraphic style. And it sort of anticipates the work that I'm doing now in the collection that I've started to write about my experiences in Zambia. Oh, wonderful. Yes, that's great. You have to tell us a bit more, because you'll be um, reading some of the new work tonight at Shaman Drum. I will, yes. But, I'll be reading uh, the first uh, three-part poem. So, yeah, so so people will get a sense of some of the, the, the poems in Wide Boy now, and then mm. come tonight and, and have both. I think this will maybe give them an idea of perhaps what they might anticipate. And when you say telegraphic, what do you mean by that? Like, what can we look for when we're listening? What listening can we listen to this, for? well, very short sentences, and in fact, some of them aren't sentences at all, just phrases, really. Uh, so the entire poem, the only punctuation that is in here is uh, periods or full stops, as we would say back home. Uh, and so it's a kind of a collage poem, but it's in a telegraphic style at the same time. Okay, so this poem is called Brogue. All over, meaning lost or gone. A local idiom that speaks of disappointment. When asked, it's where I say I'm from. All over, meaning don't belong. An orphan with no mother tongue. The aspirated consonants of Ulster, low-mouthed vowel sounds, a confederacy of opposites, broad Belfast mixed with Afrikaans. Two worlds together, two worlds apart, together meaning cancel out, an ear for intonation, parsing language down. 
compiling catalogs of music like an idiot savant. Vernacular phonology. Hard to talk about. My FM baritone a blind. Appearance, meaning front, facade. Not who we are, but what we're taken for. In Zambia, we spread an old pink sheet along the ground. Chameleons adapt to their surroundings, put on camouflage. The one my brother found turned green. If trapped, they take a powder, meaning leave, make like a tree. Thank you. Thank yeah, you I kind of screwed up a little bit there. <laughs> Normally, I'd really try to make sure that doesn't happen, but cool, cool. No, it's still, it sounded, it was great. Good. It, it was, it was great. And um, so, so I wanted to also actually um, ask you about like a method of working that I wondered about, because I noticed that many of your, your poems are, are actually dedicated to individuals. So there's one for your wife on her 32nd birthday, yes. but then there, and there's one for David Wells, who you David. mentioned with the ween yes, of course. song, um, the ween tribute, um, and, and, and multiple others. Is that a method of working for you where you, you're writing to an individual, almost like a letter poem or? Yeah, it's interesting. I suppose sometimes I would write uh, occasional poems in that respect or poems that I imagine probably if they come to fruition would be you know dedicated to a specific person or to a specific experience that I had shared with that person oftentimes I find that I end up writing uh, poems for my wife for our anniversary or for our birthday and she always tells me you know those are always the best poems you know the ones that you've written you know they have for me or for other people in particular because they have a real sense of emotional investment uh, you know, of course, I would argue with her and say that some of the other ones do as well. Uh, but I think she is right for the most part. And I feel that perhaps I'm able to tap into a little bit more uh, when I'm writing in that respect. Because it's almost, would it be like a talking to then as well? Yeah, it is sort of a conversation, I suppose, in some ways. Yeah, like a, a sort of a recapturing of a shared event. Right, yeah. right. And then, yeah, and sh sharing it further then. Um, well, let's. Uh, you know what? I do want to give you time to read a couple more poems. So let's take a short break now, and we'll be back with the Living Writers Show and Philip Crimble right after this break. Breakfast in cemetery, boy tasting wild cherry, touch girl apple blossom. Just a boy playing possum We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer What is that cheerful sound? Rain falling on the ground We'll wear a jolly crown Buckle up, we're wayward bound We'll come back for Indian summer We'll come back for Indian summer Well, um, welcome back to autumn. <laughs> 
instead of that Indian summer from Beat Happening. Um, today, if you're just tuning in, the Living Writers Show is happy to have Philip Crimble in the in the hot seat, in the poetic hot seat. <laughs> um, nice how I apparently enjoy my own jokes, right, Philip? Um, so, um, so, so you've got on. I'm holding your book, Wide Boy, here, and it's it's printed. Um, it's lovely. It's printed in Belfast. That's right. Yes. Um, by Lapwing Publications. Right. And come this new out in 2007 and on the back it says the lapwing is a bird in Irish lore so it has been written ind- indicative of hope yeah that's right and that's, that's lovely it really is Isn't yeah it? uh, it's a, the, the guy who, who runs the press his name is Dennis Gregg uh, just a really interesting guy, and he's just uh, so motivated to try and get poetry out there. And he's really passionate about it. And, you know, I had a, just a, a really lengthy correspondence with him uh, as we were going over the galleys for the book. Uh, and it just uh, convinced me that more and more, the more that, uh, you know, I corresponded, that this was the right person and this was the right press for me to come out with. Of course, coming out in Belfast, my hometown, really, was something that I couldn't have been more delighted about. Uh, and to come out with Dennis and, you know, all of the hard work that he did, I mean, I was a bit of a task master in terms of like getting everything just so and I think there must have been as many as maybe you know seven or eight galleys uh, but with the content is exactly the way I want it to be now so that is wonderful yes that and that's and speaks so well of the press um, because many I'm not sure everyone has that experience Philip with with their first books or their or their fourth or fifth, right? Like, oh, yeah. If you're dealing with a commercial press, I mean, uh, I think that's that sort of attention to detail is basically unheard of. And, and is he actually as Irish uh, as well? Then is it because is, is there a different? Because you know, the romantic idea is, of course, that um, in Ireland, it's uh, poetry has maybe a more. Uh, a, a place in the everyday, more so than in America or maybe Canada. Yes, right. <laughs> the states versus Canada. Sorry. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, is uh, that is that true? Do you think that's true? Or? Well, he is Irish. Yes, he is uh, yeah, sort of a native of Belfast. Um, and in terms of the uh, the poetry itself, well, according to him, it's not nearly what it used to be in terms of the way it's received by the public. Um, I think that probably. Uh, you know, in relation to what we experience here in North America, uh, you know, it may be a case where, in fact, people are responding much more so. Uh, but uh, he is somewhat dismayed by the fact that poetry just simply isn't being stocked in bookstores. It's just not available for you if you want to purchase it. So he's sort of doing this kind of grassroots thing uh, right. where he's bringing it back to the people. Yeah, it's fabulous. And that's wonderful. And you're and and so you're uh, in the forefront of that. Then. Well, certainly, uh, you know, I'm one of many writers that he has. Uh, you know, but uh, um, I'm not sure if I'm in the forefront of anything <laughs> right now, to tell you the truth. But certainly, I'm happy to have my book come out with his press. Yeah, it is. It's wonderful. I, I love it. There is something about it that um, I, I don't know. It seems like there's. I don't know. Maybe I'm. I'm. <laughs> maybe I'm being a bit too um, weird about it. But it does seem like there's some sp- a different spirit sort of to the book, um, and and visually, and uh-huh. and, um, and perhaps why and and within it why why they chose to to publish it. Um, well, let's have another poem then instead of me talking about it. <laughs> Certainly, no problem. Um, It'd be my pleasure. Uh, is there is there any? Do you know which one you'd like to read next, Philip? So you could introduce it. So you- uh, well. Now, uh, do you feel there'd be enough time for me to read as many as two more poems, perhaps? Uh, Well, maybe I'll save this one that closes the collection till the end, then. And I think I'll read this one. It's a little longer. And again, this is a poem that, uh, you know, I won't be reading it this evening, so I figure I might as well take advantage of my opportunity to read it now. And it's called called Marigolds, and it's a poem, again, for 
for my wife, and it sort of taps into a sort of an early childhood experience that I had, and an experience that we had together planting marigolds in the front yard, and how it was that she really didn't want me to plant them because she didn't think they were particularly attractive, uh, and yet I sort of won her over. Okay, so this is called Marigolds. We brought home wild varieties of daisy, trays of foxglove, rhododendrons, and an envelope of seeds. You wouldn't have them in the garden, claimed they'd overrun the irises and cyclamen, spoke in expletives of ornamental weeds. We spent all morning perched on hands and knees with trowels, a can of water, bunched the showy plants together, tamped each flower into place. A plowman's lunch, cold beer in bottles, moon dance on LP, the ache of labor in our fingers, like a loved one roused from sleep. Not that I sulked or that we disagreed, but in part, at least, to humor me, you filled the clay pot on the porch with store-bought topsoil, kissed my cheek. The marigolds we planted in the shade that day were never meant to take. Within a week, the squirrels had them, hothouse pansies that we bought for next to nothing bloom obscenely in their place. Mornings, while I wait to fix my coffee, I wake slowly, raise the blinds. In a teacup on the sill above the sink, six tiny seedlings reach for light. Your gift to me, an unexpected kindness. Now I tend to them inside. Of all the times I've cheated death, the first is last to mind. I'd fallen from a second-story window, landed safely in the marigolds, lay waiting like a changeling child, abandoned, left for you to find. Oh, well, thank you. Oh, I'm, glad, you're I'm glad we got the Marigolds one on the Living Writer Show. Good, That's yeah. great. <laughs> um, so how do, how do you choose which ones you're going to read, <coughs> Philip? Like, just throw them up in the air? And <laughs> well, and at a public reading, you mean? Yeah. Well, how would I choose yes. that? Well, um, I guess I try to sort of uh, give people a sample of everything that I'm capable of doing. Or, you know, I, I would look at the way the collection sort of moves forward and think about uh, maybe a, a selection of poems from each of the sections. And, of course, this evening I'm going to be reading a reasonably long poem, for me anyway, uh, in that the middle. One. The new poem, yeah. So uh, that's something else that I have to sort of factor into my entire strategy. Yeah, yeah and it is a strategy, right? Because it's, 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 a, it's, it's the showmanship part of the, the poems, isn't it? Well, like I think it's sort that. of like, you know, it's, it's like a narrative. There's an arc to it, right? So you feel like you're sort of building towards something, and then you sort of uh, perhaps uh, come down a little bit towards the end, sort of uh, end on a, a really sort of satisfying note. Hopefully, anyway, that's the okay. way I feel. Let's, let's imagine that it'll <laughs> not, work that way. Wood, yeah. I'm sure it will. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Um, well, let's see. I... I um, I also was wondering, what did you think about having Simon Armitage uh, blurb your book? Because he says, let's see, pop culture, punchlines, and poetry find an easy and admirable accommodation here. Um, so 
British British poet, playwright, novelist. Oh yeah, a real sort of Renaissance man, really, in that respect. I would say uh, Simon Armitage really is. Uh, 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 the modern equivalent of uh, someone like Auden, perhaps, you know, or Ted Hughes, I would say, maybe even more so, sort of a, a poet of the people. And, uh, you know, if you were living in England now, you probably would know about him by osmosis, in a sense, mm. right? Whereas over here, I don't think his reputation has really sort of uh, landed in this country in quite the same way. Uh, I really got interested in him um, when I was a student here. Uh, one of my good friends and a colleague uh, of mine when I was in the program, his name is Ron. Flaherty. Uh, he had studied with Glenn Maxwell uh, when he was at uh, UMass Amherst, and uh, he had said to me, you know, you should really check out this guy Armitage. I think he's really sort of in keeping with what your writing style is like. And I was just sort of like enamored with his work immediately. Uh, and it ended up, I took a course with uh, Larry Goldstein in my second year on contemporary poetry, uh, you know, poetry from like 1990 to the present. And I, I, I wrote my term paper on Simon Armitage's long poem dealing with the uh, millennial Guy Fawkes Day, if you know what the Guy Fawkes Day is, where they, they burn Guy Fawkes in effigy because of his attempt to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Uh, and this is sort of like a long, sustained sort of list poem uh, that I spent a great deal of time uh, uh, working on, trying to sort of unpack in a sense. And uh, Simon liked it so much that he posted it on his website. It's been there since 02. So, so you sent it to him? I sent it to him, so, yeah. Okay. Just like email, emailed it or actually posted well, I, it in the mail? Yeah, I sort of the... queried him first to see if he'd be interested. And he was certainly interested in reading about it. Because, I don't, you know, if, if you're a contemporary poet, the chances are that there isn't a whole bunch of scholarship being done on your work yet. I mean, typically you have to wait until presumably you're dead, perhaps, or unless you get some kind of enormous international there. reputation, oh, right? right? Uh, so I think he was just thrilled to think that someone was actually taking the time to do some scholarship on his work. And uh, he, he liked the poem or the, the essay so much that he posted it. So uh, I had that in my favor. And uh, before asking him if he would uh, write the blur for the back of my book, I had I'd sent to a, a contest in uh, the north of England uh, my manuscript, and he was the judge for it. And he had shortlisted me uh, so I was a finalist for that. Uh, so I'd mentioned to him and said, you know, you you know, of course, that my my essay has been on your website for years now. But what you may not know is that uh, you actually made me a finalist in this contest. And he said, no, I had no idea. So I sort of like cashed my chips in. That's wonderful, yeah. though. I mean, that's and perfect. And he responded, yeah, it was great. And then and that and this is you know, it's a, a big deal. Well, Phil, uh, let's have. Would you read us another poem then? Absolutely, yeah. That would be great. Well, I'll. Uh, I'll read this last one in the collection to you because it's one that uh, you had uh, expressed some interest in hearing. That would okay. be great, unless there's one you really otherwise do what you want. No, I think you this, is anyway. probably, <laughs> uh, this is probably a, a good way to to end this. And again, I won't be reading this one this evening, so uh, it's an opportunity for me to get it out there a little bit more. So it's called Southside. Uh, it's a little bit about just the experience that I had uh, when I traveled to the South Side of Chicago a couple of years ago to visit a friend. Uh, and it deals a lot with, you know, references to, uh, you know, Robert Lowell, uh, you know, William Carlos Williams, certainly Nelson Algren, Simone de Beauvoir. There's a whole bunch packed into this little 14-line poem. Uh, so I guess I'll just go ahead and, and again dedicated to, to someone dedicated to uh, Megan Bittinger who is uh, a good friend and colleague of my wife's and certainly a, fr a good friend of mine as well and I had traveled with her to Chicago uh, that weekend okay so Southside it's more a matter of the things to be refused the steel refineries in Gary Williams classic scene passivity the unforgiven landscape 
Suppose you have nothing left to lose, like Nelson Algren, old Division Street saloons, Simone de Beauvoir, South Side neighborhoods. We all die far from home. Commuters crowd us on the L. Some loud mouth shouts into a phone. Young lovers sleep uneasily. It's cold. You walk a mile down Bosworth, find a whistle in the road. Choice is overrated. Chicago won't be told. Put your lips together. If necessary, blow. Thank you very much, Philip. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And, um, well, now it's sort of a, 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 a strange occurrence because we've got um, another half hour of the Living Writer show coming up, but um, but it's pre-taped, pre-taped, so you and I will skedaddle. And, um, but we have... Um, Let's see, Phoebe Nobles and Jenny uh, Ferrari-Adler and their the, their book coming right up. Um, and just some announcements, because uh, Philip's reading tonight, as we said, uh, at Shaman Drum, 7 p.m., and it's billed as a author discussion and signing, so I hope you're ready oh, for some questions. No <laughs> Good to give you a heads up on that, right? It's an author discussion. Um, and then this Thursday night, we've got Jason Breedle, who's appeared on the show, um, coming to town to read from his uh, book Pain Fantasy also at Shaman Drum 7pm uh, this coming Monday October 8th Jeff Parker um, will be in town with his book Oven Man um, from Tin House Press and he'll be reading at the Neutral Zone in um, in in collaboration with Shaman Drum as well uh, thank you so much to Alex Sergey for engineering this and the next half of the show thanks for streaming in Seattle England and for listening here in Ann Arbor thank you to Philip Crimble thank you T my pleasure thank Good afternoon, Ann Arbor. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. And today, uh, well, today my name is T. Hetzel, much like yesterday. But today I'm lucky to be sitting in the studio um, with Jenny Ferrari Adler and Phoebe Nobles. Um, Welcome. Welcome, lovely ladies. Thanks, T. Thank you. Um, Today we're going to be, um, we're talking about Alone in the Kitchen with an Eggplant, Confessions of Cooking for One and Dining Alone, uh, uh, an anthology edited by Jenny um, and and with one of Phoebe's pieces included. Um, We actually taped this show um, earlier in the week on Monday, Um, so you're you're hearing it a little bit ahead of time, Um, but the the ladies will be having a reading. that was on Tuesday. Uh, but anyway, enough about what will now be the past. Let's talk <laughs> about the book. And, um, and and to start us off, I'm going to say a little bit about both of our lovely guests' um, uh, biographies. 
Jenny Ferrari Adler is a graduate of Oberlin College and the University of Michigan, where she received an MFA in fiction. She has worked as a reader for the Paris Review, a bookseller, an egg seller, and an assistant at a literary agency. Her short fiction has been published in numerous magazines. She lives in New York City. Phoebe Nobles lives and writes in Ann Arbor. Um, she's currently a cheese-making apprenticeship. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she's an apprentice <laughs> in the cheese-making. And a ship. A ship that sails. That's our Phoebe. Um, and so she's she's working in Ann Arbor. And this, um, this piece is uh, in the book Alone in the Kitchen with an Eggplant is, is one of Phoebe's first publications. And she was also on Salon.com with this essay. Yeah. Right, Phoebe? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, Welcome both of you. Thanks for being Thanks on, for having us. on the show. Um, and so maybe we'll we'll talk a little bit about the the, the book tour that you've had so far with mm-hmm. um, Alone in the Kitchen with an Eggplant. And okay, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the places? And um, sure, the people? it's been it's been great. It you know we had, I had a big reading in New York and then um, was in Boston with Phoebe and Steve Almond and in Atlanta with Phoebe and in Sag Harbor um, with Jamie Attenberg. So it's been great. It's great to be out in Michigan where I was when I really was alone in the kitchen with an eggplant. <laughs> where it all and, started? Um, all started here. So this is a this is the big homecoming. Yeah, so Jenny, how did you come up with the idea? Like, what happened? Were you... Were you well, it couldn't have been in more... In the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was a very, you know, it was very organic, very genuine. Um, I, I really was. I mean, I moved out here to get my MFA in fiction and... Um, found myself living alone in a house on the old west side great kitchen um and i was like where are my six roommates from new york and where are my friends like where is everybody and um i was you know trying to write a novel which is like lonely anyway but i sort of got fixated on the problem of cooking for myself um and then i read this great essay called alone in the kitchen with an eggplant which is by Lori colwin and it made me feel a lot better it's a great essay about her sort of hanging out in her 20s in a Greenwich Village apartment making eggplant. And I thought it would be great if there was a whole book like this. And so I thought somebody should make it. And then it sort of turned into like, oh, I guess I'll make it. Um, So I did. So it's been really, really cool. So I never had the thought like, I should make an anthology. What should it be? It was much more just sort of came about. And it's about writers specifically and and their culinary pursuits? Yeah, it's not about, it's, it's, no, I mean, there's food writers and fiction writers in the books, but it's more just about people, sort of men and women at different parts of their lives and what they make for each other. Who can you? I mean, what they make for themselves. Oh, okay, for themselves, right. Yeah. Because writing is a solitary pursuit, like you mentioned, and sometimes cooking can be Yeah, it's not so much about writing, but it's just about like the weirdness of um, how cooking for one is different than cooking for others, what people really make like I asked everyone what do you really make when you're alone so they're essays um, and they have recipes could you tell us some of the contributors I can got Phoebe it's a really awesome lineup um, gosh let's see I mean, we've got Steve Almond Jonathan Ames um, great food writers that are no longer alive like Mary Cantwell and MFK Fisher and Lori Colwin oh this is um, the living writers show oh no lots of living ones <laughs> mostly living um, we got Haruki Murakami Nora yes. Ephron and Patchett Paula Wolfert, Marcella Hazan, um, and many, many others. And then, yeah, Phoebe, who's great and who I know. Like, we were out in Michigan, probably both alone in our kitchens, like, 
at the same time sometimes. And Jeremy Jackson, who's a great food writer and fiction writer who is coming and, to Zingerman's and he'll in the be past slash future. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that strange place that we inhabit. Yes, Jeremy Jackson too. Okay. And so... Um, so Phoebe, when you were when you were writing your piece, did you have any idea that it was going to be included in in this, or was it just something you were happening to write, or did did Jenny approach um, you? No, Jenny helped me to. I mean, Jenny presented her idea to me, and um, food and writing were things that um, actually I had wanted to keep separate. But once I started working on ideas for an essay that might go in this book, um, I had twelve of them started. Wow. Are you still, are, so are you working on other essays too the, that will um, continue yeah. this? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. So fiction and essay writing, um, Phoebe Nobles. And, and Jenny, you mentioned your, your, you, obviously your writing too. How has this book changed then your, your fiction writing, your, your writing life? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, it was funny. Um, when I was in the program, I was writing and always sort of crying over a novel and then sort of like, weirdly doing this other thing called Alone in the Kitchen with an Eggplant that I was in this separate part compartment of my mind and then it's been really interesting to have it come out and I've had a very delayed reaction, very happy delayed reaction where I'm like, oh wait, look at this, this really is a book. And huh. it's in the world. Fascinating. <laughs> right. And, and how, um, how was it working with some of the people? Did you approach all, because Phoebe was a colleague, so yes. I can see how that connection happened. Yeah. Um, almost, Phoebe's definitely the exception in that sense. Almost everyone I, I didn't know, I just knew their work and so it was just people that I sort of, e I mean email's amazing for the shy person in that sense where I just you know I really wrote these people um, and over email it's kind of easier to be you know sound really professional and confident and say like here's my book here's what I'm doing like yes um, <laughs> want to tell me what you cook for yourself like cool. and I imagine once a couple a lot of, of people said yes. yeah, signed exactly, on then exactly. you could also mention that they exactly. were exactly that was really helpful the project well Phoebe can you tell us a little bit more about the essays that you're you're working on are you are you like is your plan to send those out like with those go to salon.com oh or? eventually right now they're just a break from other writing Okay. So, oh, yeah. Okay. So you're using so it's um, it's a it's a different headspace when yeah. you're thinking about yeah. It's all about the headspace. <laughs> and um, it's interesting because then your 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 current like how you're making ends meet right now then is also cheese making. Uh -huh. So I'd imagine there's going to be some essays. Are there? I guess I should just ask you: Are there essays about cheese? Oh, uh, not now yet. In the works? Not or? yet. But uh, I'm a cheese lover. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Phoebe's fiction is great, but I feel like I, you know, asked her to be in the book because I had a strong hunch that she was is a food writer as well. Mm -hmm. um, it just seemed clear to me from I don't know. I guess the food that I'd seen her cook and the way she talked about food and the way even food was in her fiction, I was like, "You're a food writer." I mean, not oh. instead, not to say instead of a fiction writer, but in addition. Right, right. So. Or or an essayist too. I would say, yeah. like maybe even unconnected. To food, but definitely a, mm -hmm. a, a st one of the, you've yeah it has a very strong personal voice, a good like yeah. I was actually having sort of a great time cooking for myself. Whereas, I mean, a, a lot of people were having sort of sad and lonely times. Yeah. So um, why, why was that? Why were you so? Why were you? Why are you so happy, Phoebe? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. did you or did you not have an eggplant? <laughs> you know, I didn't have an egg. I mean, um, eggplant, those really big kind, those actually are. That is really daunting to buy as a single person, but um, but the thing that my essay is about is sort of buying um, quantities of stuff at 
the farmer's market that are really for more people than you, and then you just have to keep eating them. Um, and I don't know why that was so fun for me, but um, but I was excited to live on my own um, for the first time, and it wasn't because of, um, uh, you know, total desolation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it seems like cooking can definitely be one of those because it's cr- creative, like writing, mm-hmm. right? And and so you kind of you go into again to mention headspace, you go into that different right. where you're making something. Now some of it is fun. I agree. I mean, I think when cooking for when it was fun for me was when like either I just let myself be weird and like experiment and be kind of like, hmm, what would happen if like all I got is an onion and then I like sauteed it and then I like added this thing and so that I had fun with that part. Um, Without the pressure of Without the pressure. Twenty yeah. people are coming for dinner. <laughs> exactly. And I always liked I mean, I like the chopping up the chopping up of food and I like doing that alone. Mm-hmm. But then somehow the putting things in the oven seemed too hard if I was but actually that happens even if I'm not alone. But I don't know. A lot of the essays are I mean, some of them are yeah, talk about not liking it, but a lot of them talk about just sort of the weirdness and the ways in which it's like funny or you sort of kind of provides this window into like how do you really act if no one else is there and and like, who are you really? And like, what do you really eat if no one's watching you? Sometimes it's not very nice things or it's funny things. And and do you feel like there is a lot of um, of truth being told in the book? Where even if it's you 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 mentioned mm-hmm. that it's humorous, so it's not going to be like we don't want to make it sound like you're alone. And there's a very large vegetable looming. It's it's a it's a up it's a fun. Yeah, it's it's both. I mean, there is a lot of truth. It's sort of great. I mean, there's. There are pieces by, um, there's a great piece by Courtney Eldridge, who's a great fiction writer, talking about um, her recent divorce from a chef and how hard it is to make anything she learned to make with him and just sort of how hard it, and so that's a very like honest piece. Um, And, you know, there are just other pieces about being single and being, or being alone. So it's sort of like serious and funny, but it does touch on, I think, you know, truths about just sort of loneliness so who, how do you how are you positioning it then or how is the how um how is the publisher positioning it um Jenny cuz is it something mm-hmm. where like where would you find this book who would come upon it is it only for food lovers um it's a great question no this book i mean it's easy i'm happy to say it's pretty easy to find it's it's everywhere in town it's definitely i definitely saw it shaman draw on borders they've got it um That's great. It is, it is, it's sort of where it is, is in the food writing section in bookstores, like with your, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Ruth Reigel and that stuff. Like, so it's sort of food writing. That being said, I would, you know, I think it genuinely is for everyone. Um, but really, like there are, you know, there are pieces in here that say, I hate, like Corinne Aldridge's piece, which starts by saying, you know, I hate to cook, seriously. Like it's cooking is hard. So I think it's for food people, but also people who just like want a really sort of vicarious glimpse into cool writers' lives and like what they're secretly up to. That, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's like personal That's, essays, so it's fun. Yeah, and it's something everyone has to do is slap some food together for themselves. Um, so there's fried eggs in here, and it's it's not super foody food. That's that's what I was wondering too. If it would be, uh, yeah. So there's like the moments, like the the quiet daily moments of the slapping the fried egg. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a gross piece that's great um, by Jonathan Ames where he talks about cooking eggs for himself and giving himself food poisoning for multiple days. So it's not like your shiny food magazines all like cooking for one is like beautiful. Right, it's these, more it's a little a little grittier. These pieces aren't necessarily lacquered and right. Well, and Phoebe, you're going to read um, a part of your piece for us. I right? will read well, a part. Sure. So so why don't we take um, we'll take a short short break okay. um, for some Neil Young and we'll be back to hear Phoebe. Nobles. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. Um, welcome back to the Living Writers Show. Today in the studio, we've got Phoebe Nobles and Jenny Ferrari Adler, and um, they're here with their book, Alone in the Kitchen with an Eggplant Confessions of Cooking for One and Dining Alone. Uh, Phoebe, um, would you mind reading us a part of your, uh, your essay? Sure. Um, this essay is called Asparagus Superhero. Um, and I'm just going to read a part of it. And one thing I should explain um, probably is that the term Spargelfrau comes up. Um, that was just uh, my alternate um, German term for the superhero. How did you come upon that term? Like, was it something you searched for or did it land in um, your lap? No, it landed in my lap, the Spargelfrau. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe more on that later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and... Um, I think this will be self-explanatory. The winter in Michigan is long, dark, and damp. There are three things you can get fresh here year-round. Beef, bread, and beer. Everything else comes from far away. Everything else in winter comes from a Cisco truck. If you know what you're doing in a Michigan winter, you will greet depression with depressants. Pad your dying soul with flesh. Hibernate. In the impossible spring, your cheeks will be round enough for the right spargle grin, a grin worthy of the triumph of cathedral tips breaking through the ground. The asparagus is here. The asparagus is all that's here in the farmer's market in May, aside from a few stalks of rhubarb. We are still wobbly on our indoor legs. Under our eyes are deep circles of leftover winter despair. We have been waiting so long for a vegetable or fruit. The spring equinox back in March was irrelevant, cruelly crafted for a lower latitude. We started thinking of strawberries when we saw the first crocuses killed by frost. But that was a pipe dream. The strawberries still aren't quite ripe. But when they are, they will be dark and concentrated, almost as if they've had to furrow their brows. Michigan is a place, for me, of two firsts. Living alone, well, this alone, and depending heavily, this heavily, on the seasons. Before I moved here, I couldn't avoid the fact that I lived in an international pleasure dome, New York City. I shopped at the green markets as much as I could. I kept up with the slight seasonal differences between Jersey tomatoes and upstaters, and I distrusted calendar-defying hydroponics. Often, especially at Union Square, there was overwhelming bounty, but I always liked a tiny green market for providing a challenge or imperative. Oh, it's only the Tomatillo people today. Given the overdose of choice in the global capitalist world, I normally have a hard time deciding what to cook. But here, Tomatillos, I would have to make salsa on assignment. 
The dawning and dwindling ends of the growing season are good for imposing menus. There might be only radishes and arugula in the early spring. In fall, there are nothing but oven fillers, long cooking squashes and apples that eventually give way to warty gourds and Christmas wreaths. But even though there are real farms and farmers in the regions around the city, New York defies reliance on the season. When pickings were slim in the winters I lived there, I just bought pineapples and papayas at the Korean deli. I could get these at midnight if I wanted to. The growing seasons of the rest of the world were ours. Eating local in New York City can mean eating mung bean sprouts that have arrived from somewhere far away via Chinatown, or fishing a cake of tofu out of your local deli's tofu water. Of course, there are supermarkets where I live now. I buy bananas. I buy lemongrass and cilantro. I don't stop myself from trying, usually failing, to get a good fig. But partly because I don't have a car, the easiest and most satisfying place for me to shop is at the farmer's market. I can walk there. And in summer, the Michigan crops, cherries, corn, eggplants, blueberries, apricots, are miraculous. In late fall, though, I fail to make the shift to the supermarket with its Chilean grapes, its Texan greens. I keep going to the farmer's market, even when there is almost no food. From November through April, I wander under the corrugated shed roof, along the walkways where farmers huddle by portable heaters on Saturday mornings to sell apple fritters and cider. We greet each other with mutual suspicion. What are you doing out here? In our eyes is a lean and hungry vegetable craving. In our cheeks is apple donut, our serving of fruit and fiber and happiness for the day. So even if you don't like asparagus, you can understand the thrill of seeing those bundles of slim stalks standing upright on the tables early one Saturday morning. It's still chilly out. Maybe you haven't had your first cup of coffee, but the asparagus tips sparkle in your green-starved eyes like jewels. Their live green is more alluring than money. The asparagus superhero feels, at this moment, that she could eat all her asparagus raw for the rest of the spring, but there is going to be a lot to eat. <laughs> Thank you, Phoebe. Sure. That was great. I, I just sit very far away from the mic, so I wasn't laughing into it. That was, that was great. Um, so, what hap- Can you tell us a little bit about what happens to the the, the superhero by the end? Like, the there- superhero eats a lot of asparagus. Um, <laughs> the, the superhero turn cream. Or? Or? Um, well, um, there is a section about what how her how her pee turns. Um, not not green, but just has that special smell. But um, <laughs> but but it's sort of about one person, the superhero, trying to clean um, trying to clean up all of the stocks of asparagus from the world as long as they're <laughs> as long as they're available. Um, it's about trying to eat it all. So like it's seasonal it's, superheroism. Yes, yeah. it's not. It's not at all about scarcity. I almost thought when you were reading the list about the spring with the strawberries and this sort of glorious time, I thought, oh no, everyone's probably like holding their head in their hands right now. You know, yeah, the, it's time for the that. autumn. <laughs> yeah. Despair, despair. Stock up on your green visions now. Yeah, that time is coming. <laughs> <laughs> And and so so Jenny, you've 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 you guys have both then you've been to Boston and, mm-hmm. and read at bookshops and also in Atlanta, and so what what's how are people receiving this? Like, is are are people sort are are they asking questions afterwards? Do you see that they're engaged and kind of eager to talk food and yeah, personal no, it's been, things. It's been really good actually. I think a lot of um, it almost always happens where people want to kind of then share 
there the way that it is for them and you know what they used to make or what they make right now and um i think that's one of the funnest things about the book everyone does sort of really want to say like oh um you know i used to i met someone who told me she used to make spaghetti and eat it in bed uh, not in bed in the bathtub um and she was like i really miss that i'm not living alone anymore but that was great i did it every night i was like okay so i've heard a lot of stories like that <laughs> right right and, yeah. and do people um then is there a way like is there a website for the book there is great question um it's alone in the kitchen.com and then can people also add their stories is it something where it's a community of exchange or recipes or Not whatever ex- it is it's there is um they can email me their recipe and if i got a lot it might be fun to do something with that but right now it's just um i mean it has a lot of information about you know events and who the contributors are and where you can get the book and and all that stuff. Oh, that sounds that sounds great. It yeah. might be kind of interesting if people are so forthcoming with mm-hmm. their their recipes or experiences. That might make it, uh, you know, give it a community. Yeah, totally. feel to it. And we could all eat alone, but it will be communal. <laughs> right. You never you never eat alone, really. If you. Yes. <laughs> oh well. Um. What. Uh, well, what are some of the the other vegetables besides um, asparagus and eggplant that are in the book? Um, well, it's, let's see. The, or is there meat also? Because oh, yeah, Phoebe gives meat. a nod to meat, and that was wonderful. There's, <laughs> there is. Um, and meat. I mean, just off the top of my head, Haruki Murakami talks about spaghetti. It's called The Year of Spaghetti. And Nora Ephron talks about eating mashed potatoes in bed. Um, and then there are, there are actually a bunch of, um, like, good recipes from restaurants that got attached to people's essays. Like, Aaron Ergenbright was was a waitress at Clark Lewis in Portland. And so there's a recipe from that restaurant that sounds really good with tuna and tomatoes. Um, and there's a recipe from Diner in New York City, which is another awesome restaurant because the essay is sort of in part about eating alone there by Jamie Attenberg. Oh, so, at, at a diner, like going out to eat yes, alone at a, a at diner. a diner, which oh, is called Diner, in fact. That, that's great. Um, yeah, so there there is a range. I mean, there are some like more substantial fish recipes and then there's some a lot of really simple ones like black beans and mashed potatoes and things that I think people... It's like comes on too. Yeah, I think the starches are very important to people who eat alone. Is that some? That's that's a conclusion. Mm. No, I just think they. I mean, yeah. There's the spaghetti, um, mm-hmm. potatoes, oatmeal, and saltines. Mm-hmm. Saltines make an appearance. They do, and it's pretty great. It's Ann Patchett um, talking about when she was in Provincetown on a fellowship in her twenties, and she basically lived on saltines and oatmeal. And she sort of says she loves it. She says, you know, she ate what she needed to in order to do her work. Right, right. And that so. gave her fuel. And, and Phoebe, can you um, witness to the fact that they are well stocked in Provincetown with saltines? Uh, that's about it. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank goodness for saltines. Um, people then I you have an funny. activity, too, right? Like as you eat them, people eat them different ways. Yeah. To the saltines. I mean, what do, do you have a secret food that you sort of eat when you're alone? Oh, no. <laughs> not to be no. aired here. <laughs> what? What, Phoebe? Not she, to be aired here. Yeah, not to be aired on the air. But Phoebe, what were you going to say earlier when I... Oh, started? I just think that people do develop a sort of... It's embarrassing to admit what you what you make for yourself alone, but people do also get sort of an attachment or a, or a pride about it. Um, maybe a very secret pride. I mean... Before I think they've been making confessions to Jenny, but I I didn't hear any confessions mm. um, personally about the spaghetti in the bathtub mm. type of experience. Um, 
Yeah. Another thing that comes up again and again in the book is um, a lot of people talk about how when they lived alone, they would sort of make the same meal again and again, which is something I really, really related to. And I was like, oh, really? Me too. I felt much better because I really, when I lived in town, um, I had a long phase with just getting that great multigrain bread from Zingerman's and putting honey and tahini on it. And I just sort of, st- I mean, so I don't know what the, the nutrition there is. I mean, it's multigrain bread on the other hand, <laughs> you know, it's not so balanced, but I really stuck with that meal for a while. It was all I wanted. And it's a starch too. Yeah. And it was like sweet and yummy. Yeah, when a great tip. So now it's, I love when the Living Writers Show can go into all these different, um, uh, places like sometimes we have, you know, the, the the manifesto type moments, and now we have some some recipes and some deductions about writers that starch mm-hmm. seems to be important in their lives. <laughs> Eating alone is also a very good time to scrimp on money and because that can be a challenge, right? Well, sure. I mean, um, I know somebody who used to just eat onions and ketchup alone, mm. and you know, it's cheap, and. You- <laughs> <laughs> and maybe but then that like begs the whole alone part with the onions doesn't right. it like maybe it's like a cycle of I'm eating the onion with the ketchup alone and then no one wants to come around me because I have bad breath I don't right. know I mean I got interested in just how much I mean people so often cook um for others as a way to really offer care and be nice and welcoming and feel like if you have someone over for dinner, you usually try to make like a fairly balanced meal. Like you probably think a little bit about like health to an extent. And then it is, so it is very interesting if suddenly you're eating onions and ketchup, you probably would never serve that to another person. And like it it makes you wonder like, Hmm, well, why do we treat ourselves this funny other way sometimes? Yeah, ways to care for ourselves. Yeah, but it makes for a great story. I love that, the onion and ketchup, because I'm wondering if it's cooked or if it's just raw. And Well, well, let's, um, even though um, the event will have happened, um, let's talk a little bit about um, tomorrow. Jenny, would you mind giving us uh, the rundown on the... Um, the sure, it's really fun. It's going to be at Zingerman's um, Deli. I think it's Deli upstairs next door or possibly... The words are in a different order there. Um, and Jeremy Jackson, who I've never met. I'm really excited to meet him tomorrow. And he has a great piece about black beans and cornbread. So he'll be reading from that. It's called Beans and Me. It's hilarious. And it's a reading and a tasting. Yeah. And I'll be presumably reading as well from the intro. And we'll talk, take questions. The books will be on sale. And they're making a lot of the food from the book, which will be a treat for me. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. Kind of exciting. It will be coming to, coming to life. Almost like in another way than a pop-up book does. Like this will be like yeah. <laughs> you get the food on and, the, um, They're definitely one. like they're definitely making a lot of the things that come from the real sort of food writers in the book, like Martella Hazan and Amanda Hesser. And so there are they are making some delicious sounding things. And Involving, like anchovies and eggs on toast and things so, like that. So more than the fried fried egg then? Yes. And, and no um, onions and ketchup tomorrow. Just really, just really briefly, Jenny, how was it to write the intro for the book? Was it um, a and, new experience or how? Well, it was a really long experience because I wrote part of the intro um, when I sold the book on proposal. And then so it just sort of grew and grew and grew. It was like I've never really worked on a, such a short piece of writing. It was 15 pages over so long. Um so now the intro sort of contains both the story of like how I came to Michigan and was alone and then also talks about all the pieces in the book. So it got rewritten a lot of times. Um, and it's it's also very funny. I think, you know, it has like dialogue that I had with my brother where he says things like, you know, are you OK? Do you need money? Like, are you full? <laughs> right. <laughs> and sets the tone for the yes. rest of the book. You're sort of setting yes. it up. Well, um, 
Well, thank you so much, both of you, thank for being you. here thank you, today. And, Thanks, and, and, um, and Jenny, great idea to put this together. And Phoebe, thank you so much for reading. Um, and what was, it, what was the asparagus uh, superhero name again? The, oh, the Sparkle Frau. Sparkle Frau. Um, that is enough to make me want to buy the book to find out more about Sparkle Frau. Um, You're easy to please to. So, <laughs> thank you. My best quality, right? Alone in the kitchen with an eggplant. Um, you've been listening to The Living Writers Show and we have um, Jenny Ferrari Adler and Phoebe Nobles that you've, you've heard today. Um, all right. Well, thank you. Until next time. The Daily Sports Report. There to pick it up. Now here to Geis. Geis makes a move. Shoots and scores. Milan Geis with a sick move in the slot and beats Jordan Sigalat. I don't know how many moves he pulled off there, but Milan Geis scores. And we are tied at three goals to beat. Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, October 3rd, and thank you for tuning in to the Daily Sports Report. I'm Stuart Zoss here with Tony and Amy. Amy, would you like to get things started with Michigan news? All right, sure. Well, obviously the biggest thing today is that, according to the Detroit Free Press, Mario Manningham is not expected to play against Eastern Michigan this Saturday. Apparently he violated some undisclosed team rule, and is getting a one-game suspension about that. And uh, apparently, actually, he was uh, in Lloyd Carr's doghouse uh, earlier this season because uh, Carr decided that he wasn't being as productive as he could be. Apparently, during the Oregon game, he felt he was, you know, slacking off on some of the longer runs and so forth and actually said that he didn't think he was playing up to his ability. There's actually been a couple of press conferences uh, this year. Carr has singled out Manningham and talked about how disappointed he's been in the play of Manningham, whether it's effort or just the uh, overall play of Mario. So we don't know what the one-game suspension was for, and we don't know when it happened. Maybe it was just convenient uh, that it was this week against Eastern, or maybe it happened earlier in the year, and Carr decided that Eastern would be the best week to enforce that suspension. But we have no idea of any other details. Um, and then the only other news in Michigan sports is Michael Phelps was voted USA Swimming's Athlete of the Year, and the men's soccer team has a game tonight at 7. Well, good for Michael Phelps. He's, uh, he's not